Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights today, Mormon 7 through 9. So as we open up this particular block of scripture, you'll notice that this is the very end for Mormon. This is the end of his life. Uh, we don't know exactly how old he is. He doesn't give us a timestamp in chapter 7, but we know from the previous chapter, chapter 6, that the final battle took place in 385. The next timestamp we're going to get is 401 AD from Moroni, his son, who says, I'm all alone. My dad, my family, all my people were killed by the Lamanites. That's it. So that's our next timestamp. So last battle here, Moroni giving us the timestamp there. It's possible that Mormon could have died here or here or here. Eventually the Lamanites are going to kill him, but here's the point. Last battle, remember last week's lesson, the Lamanites passed over him because they thought he was dead. In other words, he probably got wounded very, very badly to the point where they just didn't bother with him. They thought he was already dead. So when he's writing this, if he's writing it fairly soon after, then he's probably got some serious wounds and some pains. And yet, in spite of that, notice who his audience is. It's his final chapter, keep in mind. This is Mormon. He has read, if you look at the, the uh, Mormon's cave that we've shown a couple of times, he, he is one of the most widely read people in the history of the world as far as being informed on, on what's happened in the past from his, from his perspective. And he could tell us about amazing things. He's had incredible visions. He's, he's an amazing disciple of the Lord. He could share all kinds of mysteries, and what does he do for his last chapter? He comes back to the most basic things he can, the covenants that God has made with us, and bearing his testimony and, and uh, teaching the reality of why this book was even written in the first place towards the end, followed by an invitation to repent. Let's, let's watch what happens. By the way, we mentioned last week and we'll mention it again today, uh, you could label chapter 7, Dear Latter-day Lamanites, Love Mormon because that's his primary target. The, the descendants of these people who, who have wounded him, who have killed hundreds of thousands of his people, he's been fighting against them his entire life, and now he's writing to their descendants. And instead of saying, let me tell you how awful your ancestors were, he doesn't focus on the bad. There's something very Christ-like about what he's doing here. He's focusing on hope and on their ability to recognize their true identity, respond appropriately, and receive the blessings that the Lord has in store for them. Notice how he starts, chapter 7, verse 1. Now behold, I would speak somewhat unto the remnant of this people who are spared. 
if it so be that God may give unto them my words, that they may know of the things of their fathers, yea, I speak unto you, ye remnant of the house of Israel, and these are the words which I speak." Okay, so there's your intro with his audience. I'm speaking to the remnant of this people. He's going to tell them four things that they need to know. Number one, you're of the house of Israel. Now, why would he care to teach them? Why would he care that the Latter-day Lamanites would know that they're of the house of Israel? There's something attached to that family. There's, there are promises that have been given, and there are responsibilities and requirements given that uh, are all tied up in, in this covenant that Taylor's been talking about all year long as we go through this. Look at verse 3. Know ye that ye must come unto repentance or ye cannot be saved. You know, this ties in beautifully with, uh, with John the Baptist talking to Pharisees who are sitting there patting themselves on the back because they say, well, we're children of Abraham. And this idea of saying, just because you're in the house of Israel, just because you're a descendant of Abraham is not going to save you all by itself. Verse 3, you must come unto repentance. The covenant isn't just what God is going to give you, that, that those promises given to Abraham, it's those obligations that unlock all of the possibilities within the covenant. Look at verse 4. Know ye that ye must lay down your weapons of war and delight no more in the shedding of blood, and take them not again, save it be that God shall command you. Stop fighting. You're not going to become more like Christ. You're not going to learn more about God by constantly contending. Verse 5, know ye that ye must come to the knowledge of your fathers and repent of all your sins and iniquities and believe in Jesus Christ that he, was, that he is the Son of God and that he was slain by the Jews and by the power of the Father he hath risen again whereby he hath gained the victory over the grave, and also in him is the sting of death swallowed up." Isn't that fun? Mormon, talking to the Latter-day Lamanites, he tells them all these things they need to know, but it culminates with coming to a knowledge of the Lord their Redeemer. Now, here's the, here's the fascinating uh, situation that we find. Mormon, writing from sometime between 385 and 401 AD, who has seen our day, he's read all of the history of his people and abridged it, and he's seen so much happen with his own people, and as he looks down the corridor of time, seeing the struggles in our day, he knows that the book that he's preparing is going to, in many places, be rejected because people are going to say things about it or make claims about it that are completely unfounded and completely untrue, but people are going to believe them. And here's Mormon. As he's, as he's coming to the end of his life, he's, he was 73 years old in 385, so he's, he's at least 73 years old when he's doing this, and you can feel you can feel Mormon's power, you can feel some of his, his frustration, you can feel him ramping up in his final writings 
to bear one more testimony one more time of what he knows is true and what's included in that list. We've already covered many of those things that he knows firmly and he, he knows clearly in verse uh, 2, 3, 4, and 5, but now watch these truths that come from, from the stylus or the pen, the, the thing that – the instrument that he's using to scratch into those plates. Look at verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, whereby man must be raised to stand before his judgment seat. You'll notice, brothers and sisters, we in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we feel very comfortable traditionally, collectively, speaking of the universal nature of the resurrection. Nobody ever, ever has an issue saying, well, everybody who dies is going to be resurrected because of the resurrection of Christ. We're comfortable with that. The part that we don't often give equal emphasis to is the fact that the power of the resurrection doesn't just bring you up out of the grave, it also brings you up into the presence of God to be judged. All mankind, all of us, all of, all of humanity is going to be brought into the presence of God to be judged, raised to stand before his judgment seat. Now notice the, the verse 7, and he hath brought to pass the redemption of the world whereby he that is found guiltless before him at the judgment day hath it given unto him to dwell in the presence of God, in his kingdom, to sing ceaseless praises unto er, to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above, unto the Father, and unto the Son, and unto the Holy Ghost, which are one God in a state of happiness, which hath no end. So notice if we cross-reference this section with Alma 11:44. This is where we learn that everything, every one of us is going to be restored to our perfect frame as we are now or in the body and will be brought and arraigned before the bar of Christ the Son and God the Father and the Holy Spirit which is one eternal God to be judged according to their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Now, some people would say, wait a minute, Brother Griffin, uh, no unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. The infinite atonement of Jesus Christ through the power of his resurrection restores life, resurrects everybody, and redeems everybody into the presence of God, not eternally, but for this experience of judgment. Everyone will come into the presence of God, and you would say, but aren't they unclean? When we're brought in that instance, we are redeemed into the presence of God by the merits, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ alone, totally independent of anything I've done or didn't do in life. I'm not standing in the presence of God on my own merits. I'm only standing there because Jesus brings us there. On his, on his merits. Now, you'll notice the wording here that if we've met all of those conditions of repentance that Sam the Lamanite talked about, if we've done those covenantal things that Jesus has given to us through time, then it is given to us to dwell. Look back at chapter 7, verse 7 in Mormon 
hath it given unto him to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom to sing ceaseless praises. There's a big difference between coming temporarily in for a judgment experience and dwelling. To dwell means that's where you live, that's where your home is. The mansion that he prepared for you is now occupied by you. So all mankind are brought forth out of the grave and all mankind are brought into the presence of God to be judged. Um, by the way, a little, a little note here regarding the Godhead because it still causes some confusion for people saying, wait, are, are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, are they, are they Trinitarian in nature? Do they believe in the Trinity? Because it keeps talking in the Book of Mormon in all these different places about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost being one. You'll notice in Scripture, and this, isn't, this is not unique to the Book of Mormon, you'll notice that the word that the Lord uses and that his prophets use to describe the Godhead is always one. It's never the word same. They're not the same, but they're absolutely united and one in every other way, shape, and form. And there's, there's this unity that is just powerful in the Godhead that Jesus is pleading with the Father to spread among us and to combine us with them. If you, if you look at the intercessory prayer in John 17, verse 20, 21, 22, he's, he's wanting the attribute of the Godhead not to be just an attribute of the Godhead but an attribute of all of God's children. He wants us to be one. Now, brothers and sisters, just one other quick note on this. It's fascinating when, you, when you're seeking for truth, when you're trying to understand scriptures, it's so easy for people to come along and make claims and say, oh, well, this is what that means, and then just throw something out there or say, give a skeptical answer and tear down what somebody else has said. When you're looking for truth, look at all the scriptures you can, listen to all of God's prophets you can, seek as much inspiration as you can in the process, don't just take a soundbite or one person's opinion in isolation and, and set it above everything else that's ever happened or been done. Let me give you one example here. It would be easy to say, oh, well, the Book of Mormon teaches the Trinity. The reality is, is if you look at the word one that is used to describe the Godhead, then you want to triangulate that. You want to look from as many angles as you can at how that word gets used by God and by the prophets in, in other scriptures as well. And you'll notice that there are a few places where God does use this word, saying things like, if ye are not one, ye are not mine. He didn't say you have to be the same. He didn't say that in a ward you, everybody has to think the exact same things. That's not reality. We're very different. God created us different. And so we don't we're not ever commanded to be the same, but we are commanded to be one. Look at other relationships in Scripture that, that he refers to oneness. Husbands and wives are commanded to become one, and they're not even close to the same, but they're commanded to be one. Isn't it beautiful that it's the differences that we often have that make it so that we can become fully complementary 
and become truly unified in all these aspects of life. So instead of looking at other people and saying, man, if only he were more like me, then we could then we could get along, or if only she would change the way she thinks, then, then I could stand to be around. It's looking for how we can become unified, sometimes not in spite of our differences, but because of and thanks to our differences. How can we fit them together in a unified whole moving forward? It's beautiful. Okay, now look at verse 8. Look at how it starts. It starts with this word, therefore. Now, way, way back in January, the beginning of the year, we talked about the significance of this word. Let's repeat it here. Therefore is a connector word. It creates a relationship between phrase A and phrase B that come before and after it, and it connects them in a beautiful cause-effect kind of relationship. A happens, therefore B occurs. This causes that. So if a verse begins with the word therefore, then you can look at whatever came in the verse right before it and say, okay, this is the cause, and then look at the verse with the therefore and say, this is the outcome, this is the effect. So. The cause before is that we're going to be brought to be judged, and if we're found guiltless, then we get to dwell in the presence of God. That's the cause. Therefore, because I understand that, therefore, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and, be, and lay hold upon the gospel of Christ which shall be set before you. Because you're going to be brought before God, his effect is, so repent, that you know this is going to happen, so repent now so that this is glorious, so that it's beautiful, so that it's not a – so that any tears shed on that day are tears of joy and tears of love and happiness, not tears of sorrow or regret. Uh, notice he then describes something amazing about this, this project he's been working on for, for so many years. Uh, he says that this is all going to be set before – the gospel which shall be set before you, not only in this record – so you could circle in your scriptures if you like to mark them physically, you could circle this record and write in the margin, Book of Mormon, not only in the Book of Mormon but also in the record which shall come unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you, you Latter-day Lamanites, because remember his audience you're going to get that record because the Gentiles in the latter days are going to bring the record of the Jews to you, the record of the Jews being the Holy Bible, the Old Testament, that Jewish scripture, and the New Testament, the, the Christian New Testament, which was written largely by uh, people and converts to, to the cause of Christ out of Judaism and some Gentile converts in the, the New Testament. But notice what he now says, verse 9, for behold, this, the Book of Mormon, is written for the intent that ye may believe that, that record that was written by the Jews. Wait a minute, Mormon, 
you're going to all of this effort to write this book, looking down the court of time, and he's saying, I'm writing this so that you'll believe that. And if you believe that, you will believe this also. He says, if you, in the latter days, if you really truly believe the Bible, then you'll believe this too. And notice he continues, if you believe this, you will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them. This is fascinating because he's telling us in the latter days there are going to be people who increasingly disbelieve the Bible, who increasingly decrease their trust in what's written in the Bible. And he says, so I'm giving you this so that you can believe that. These two are going to stand as witnesses of God, of his covenants with you, of his mercy, of his power, of his creation, of all of this. This is not intended to be this kind of relationship or this kind of relationship. It's intended to be this kind of uh, a partnership. Hmm. I wonder if there's anything there that he wants these to become one in our hand, kind of like we were talking about the Godhead and relationships that we're commanded to be one. If we're not one, you're not mine. And he he doesn't want a competition. He doesn't want to fight. And so sometimes we we want to pit things against each other. God isn't trying to do that. There's no fight. They're both testaments of Jesus Christ. Then notice he finishes with uh, verse 10. Ye will also know that ye are remnant of the seed of Jacob, therefore ye are numbered among the people of the first covenant. Brothers and sisters, once again, this is Mormon. He could write about anything. He could share all kinds of, of mysteries of the eternities. And what is his final farewell? He's bringing us back to the covenantal promise, that those covenantal connections that we have with God. And if it so be that ye believe in Christ and are baptized first with water, then with fire and with the Holy Ghost, following the example of our Savior, according to that which he hath commanded us, it shall be well with you in the day of judgment. Amen. It isn't rocket science. Come unto Christ. Have faith in him. Trust him. Repent of your sins. Get baptized. Get the gift of the Holy Ghost. Trust him and move forward in faith. The reason we have spent so much time here just on ten verses is because these are Mormon's last words. I want you to consider if today was the last day of your life and you shut this video off and you realize you have three, six, nine hours left before you're done with this life, what last words would you preserve? What would you say and to whom? And this is what we have Mormon doing. It's his last words. And we all know that last words are often the most important words. I encourage you to think about that. What would your last words be? What would you teach and why? And if, again, if we look at what Mormon is focusing on, of all the things he could teach, he decided to teach the most important things, the focus on Jesus Christ, that we should all 
repent and find ourselves back in his presence. Now, I want to talk about this for just a, another minute or two. Not only is Mormon's last words right here, the next two chapters we'll be looking at, Moroni, who takes up in Mormon 8 and 9, he doesn't know how long he's going to be alive. In some ways, it's his last words. Very interesting. It actually turns out that much of the Book of Mormon could be read as last words. We've been reading from Alma and Helaman, where fathers are teaching their children their last words of how to trust God and to believe. Uh, we remember Lehi teaching his family. In fact, the Book of Mormon itself is last words. So there's deep significance throughout the entire Book of Mormon, it's last words. Of all the things you could ever say, what would you say and why would it matter? And maybe to bring it a little closer to home, there's a lot of chaos in the world today. Many of us are spending time sharing opinions and saying lots of things in many media, in many formats. Maybe we should ask ourselves, am I focusing on what matters most? If it really was my last day, what would I post on social media? What would I say to those that I love? And am I really focusing on things that bring joy, purpose, and ultimately invitation to God's salvation? So as we conclude Mormon's words, we just hope that all of us can just feel the enormous sincerity and love and the power of his last words to us and that we would take them seriously in these latter days to repent, to trust God's covenants so that we can dwell eternally in his presence. And with that, we're going to transition into Moroni's first last words, which is Mormon 8 and 9. So as we bid a fond farewell to Mormon, I hope in your mind's eye you can see this venerable old warrior, big man, who has now come to the end of his life, maybe the image in your mind of him leaning against his uh, probably equally big and powerful son Moroni, who's, who's much younger than him, and as Mormon then passes on these plates and these obligations to his son before uh, Mormon's own death, uh, I hope you, you can pause for just a moment and thank heaven for the life of this incredible prophet who spent so much time and energy and effort not just to try to save his own people but to try to save us today through his records. Um, I, I love Mormon and I'm, I'm thankful for what he did. Now we pass the baton to Moroni who follows in his father's direct footsteps. He does very, very similar things. You'll notice when he starts writing, he doesn't intend to write the Book of Ether and the Book of Moroni. There's very little space left on the plates and he thinks this is the end, he's just going to write a few, a few uh, summary statements and be finished. Look at verse 1. Behold, I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father Mormon. Behold, I have but few things to write, which things I have been commanded by my father. So he tells us that uh, there was this great and tremendous battle at Camorra and that everybody, all of the Nephites have been hunted by the Lamanites. Tells us that his father was killed by them in verse 3. 
and I even remain alone to write the sad tale of destruction of my people. And then he introduces an interesting phrase here, three words at the end of that verse. He tells you that, behold, my people are gone, and I fulfill the commandment of my Father, and whether they will slay me, I know not. Here he is, this, this great prophet, the son of Mormon, and he's got this incredible responsibility now to take care of these plates, and he says, I don't know if the Lamanites are going to slay me. I, I don't know. Notice verse 4, therefore I will write and hide up the records in the earth, and whither I go, it mattereth not. In other words, he could have said, I know not. I, I don't know where I'm going to go. But his point is, it doesn't matter. What matters is my covenant faithfulness to God. Notice verse 5, behold, my father hath made this record and he hath written the intent thereof. In other words, he's saying, look, he already told you why he wrote it. He wrote it so that you would believe the record of the Bible as well and combine the two, you would believe in God, you'd believe in Christ. And behold, I would write it also if I had room upon the plates, but I have not, and or I have none, for I am alone. He's like, I don't, I don't have room to write a lot of stuff, so I'm just gonna, gonna finish this. Uh, notice the ending of verse 5, and how long the Lord will suffer that I may live, I know not. I love the fact that Moroni is using this principle to teach us today in the latter days because he, he's definitely not writing this for anybody else because all of his people have been killed and the Lamanites, if they get a hold of the record, he knows they're going to destroy it. So he's writing to us today, and he's teaching us this principle that you don't have to know everything. If Elder Neil L. Anderson were, were here, he would say, you don't know everything, but you know enough to move forward in faith, to take those next steps of faith in your life. And that's what Moroni does, and it seems that as he moves forward in faith, other opportunities then open up to him that he didn't know about before, like you're now going to be safe and here's some ore, make some metal plates and expand the record, and by the way, translate the, the Jaredite story because the people in the latter days need the Book of Ether, and then you can write another closing book and call it the Book of Moroni. You can see how all of that would just come over time but he didn't start at point A knowing everything that was going to happen until he got to point Z. He just barely knew what was going to get him to point B at that point, and that is the point. He moved forward to point B, and then to point C, and then to point D. So, brothers and sisters, as you and I move forward in life, we can, we can gain great uh, inspiration from this example to say, though I don't know everything, there's a God in heaven who does, and if I'll put my trust in him and move forward to the best of my ability, things are going to work out. We will, we will prosper in the land in, in all the ways, not just the financial ways, but we'll prosper in the land in all the ways that God intends for us to prosper, to fulfill those, those responsibilities that we have. Jump down to verse 12. And whoso receiveth this record and shall not condemn it, because of the imperfections which are in it, 
the same shall know of greater things than these. Behold, I am Moroni, and were it possible I would make all things known unto you. This is one of the first times where uh, Moroni is going to introduce this concept of imperfection. He's, he's kind of isolated, and he doesn't have a lot of people to give him uh, more confidence or to, to pat him on the back or say, well done, Moroni, that's great. He, he's stuck with himself, and as he looks at his writing ability and he, he looks at the record, he recognizes some imperfection, and he, he knows that he's got some struggles, and he's going to point that out on multiple occasions in his writing. And a few weeks down the road when we get to Ether chapter 12, it's going to come to, to a, a big explosion for him, his, his imperfections in writing. So I wanted to just point that out there where he first mentions it. Keep, keep your, your eyes open. You're going to see him complain about his lack of writing ability uh, in, in multiple ways as we move forward. Now, go to verse 14. I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord. The plates thereof are of no worth because of the commandment of the Lord. In other words, these are plates, they're golden plates, they wouldn't be made out of pure gold, but they would be golden in appearance and they, they would be worth something, but Moroni is saying, no, the plates themselves are worth nothing because of the commandment of the Lord for he truly said that no one shall have them to get gain, but the record thereof of is of great worth, and whoso, sh whoso shall bring it to light, him will the Lord bless. Brothers and sisters, the plates themselves, golden plates, aren't worth anything according to Moroni, but what's on the plates, now that's worth something. There's another principle for us in the latter days. We can look at our life and all of the trimmings and trappings, they're of no worth, but the relationships and the connections with God and the truth that we seek and the things that we learn and the intelligence that we gain, that's eternally true. You can have all the gold in the world and enjoy it for a lifetime, but then be left with nothing for eternity. And Moroni is reminding us that the greatest power of the book is not its plates or the translation process or how we got it, it's the, the words, the record, the, the teachings, these connecting points with heaven. And if we miss that and spend all of our time looking at the peripheral elements, then we've totally missed the whole message of this book, which is at the core, bringing us to Christ. Uh, then he speaks in verse 17 more about some mistakes. Look at this. If there be faults, they be the faults of a man. But behold, we, have, we know no fault, nevertheless God knoweth all things. Therefore, he that condemneth, let him be aware, lest he shall be in danger of hellfire. Moroni looking down, seeing our day, he's going to see people condemning his book, and he's going to say, oh, you think you're so smart, do you? You're condemning the book because of a few flaws that you're going to find or because of some what you perceive as inconsistencies or things that haven't been yet revealed and you think you've got it all figured out and so you're going to reject the whole book because of what you, you claim is, uh, is the truth that would totally uh, paint the Book of Mormon as wrong or bad 
or in opposition to the Bible. He's saying, look at verse 18, he that saith, show unto me, or ye shall be smitten, let him beware, lest he commandeth that which is forbidden of the Lord. For behold, the same that judgeth rashly shall be judged rashly again. There are people who would come to Joseph and demand a sign or demand that he translate and prove you're a prophet, and then they would walk away saying, see, I told you he wasn't a prophet because he didn't do it, totally forgetting the fact that the devil did that same thing to Jesus. Prove you're the Son of God. Turn those stones into bread. Then I'll believe you're really the Son of God. Translate this, Joseph. Then I'll believe that you're the prophet of God. Since when did God give divine power to people on the earth to meet the demands of, of skeptics or unbelievers who say, show me a sign, then I'll believe? It just doesn't, doesn't work, and Moroni seems to be taking that on here. Uh, move down to verse 25. Behold, their prayers, speaking of the prophets before and, and of all these people who have come before, their prayers were also in behalf of him that the Lord should suffer to bring these things forth. People have said some pretty awful things about Joseph Smith, but many of God's prophets have been praying for him for millennia, this prophet to bring forth the book. Uh, taking Moroni's example, can you look in the Book of Mormon and find some imperfections and some faults and some errors? Surely you can, and he, he tells us on back on the title page even, he's going to tell you that. If there are imperfections, there are the imperfections of men. Don't condemn the things of God because of the imperfections of men. The same thing that is referring to the Book of Mormon could be used to refer to the prophet who was chosen to bring forth the Book of Mormon. If there are imperfections in his life, which there surely were because there's only ever been one perfect person that's lived on this earth, and so instead of looking at imperfections and trying to find faults and judging harshly, you look for the fruits, you look for the truth that flows through this instrument, and uh, then you can really come to know how God is doing his work, not just through Joseph and the Book of Mormon, but then you can translate that same thing to your experiences looking in the mirror. You can say, hmm, I see imperfection, I see faults, but I'm not going to condemn what God the good things that God has done in, in creating me and in giving me things to do because of my imperfections. I'm going to move forward in faith to the best of my ability to do what I can in spite of those faults and imperfections. Now, jump down to verse 26 through 33. What you have here is Moroni telling us about our day, the day in which the Book of Mormon would come forth, and he's describing the calamities and the destructions and the wars and the pollutions and the deceivings and the whoredoms and the abominations that he sees, and you now compare this faults and this imperfections uh, discussion to our world as a whole, and he's saying, look, I see lots of faults, lots of imperfections, but God has given a solution. He gave his son, and the Book of Mormon becomes a means whereby God is going to come into this world of all these struggles and teach truth and give hope 
and shine light, and it's, uh, it's powerful, and yet some people are going to reject this. Look at verse 35. I love verse 35 because nowhere in the Bible do you have something like this. Nowhere in, in uh, literature of the world do you have this depth of engagement where the writer is reaching up through the page, grabbing you by the lapels and pulling you in and looking you in the eye and saying, I'm talking to you. Look at verse 35. Behold, I speak unto you as if ye were present, and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. So on occasion, just as you're walking down the street, you might just randomly look up and smile and wave just in case that happens to be one of the times that Moroni is looking down the quarter of time. Help him feel a little more welcome in our day. That was a joke, of course. Uh, go down to verse – actually, let's jump down to chapter 9 because he opens this chapter addressing those who do not believe in Christ. And then he tells them, uh, are, are you going to continue to not believe when the Lord comes, when the earth is going to be rolled together as a scroll and the elements are going to melt? Uh, do you think that you're going to be able to dwell with him under a consciousness of your guilt? W would you be happy to dwell with that holy being? He's asking some really difficult questions here. Uh, and then he tells us, you're going to be more miserable to dwell with a holy and a just God under a consciousness of your filthiness before him than you would to dwell with the damned souls in hell. Brothers and sisters, Moroni just taught a really profound doctrine because sometimes when we speak about eternities, we say things like, yeah, God is going to save some and, and send others to hell or reject them and kick them out. The reality is, is Moroni is teaching this principle here that if we have devoted our life to, to the flesh or to the devil or to the natural elements and not to the spiritual elements, he says we would be miserable to dwell in the presence of God. And so he says, verse 5, for behold, when ye shall be brought to see your nakedness before God and also the glory of God and the holiness of Jesus Christ, it will kindle a flame of unquenchable fire upon you. What's the solution? Verse 6, O then, ye unbelieving, turn ye unto the Lord. The Hebrew context of turning, to repent, change your life, turn to the Lord. Cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps ye may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb at that great and last day. Brothers and sisters, there's something powerful here that he's mentioning. Just remember to pray in faith. Plead with him to know the truth, to discover truth. Spend more time focusing on seeking God's light than seeking the world's experts on the internet making their claims of truth or trying to tear down others' claims of truth. Spend more time praying and then triangulating the data. Do, do your homework. Study, search. Don't just take one person's opinion and then throw out everything you've ever learned and say, oh, I guess it's all wrong. It's pretty easy for, for the devil to paint good things in a negative light or to paint negative things in a positive light. 
Then Moroni takes us into some, some of the, the doctrines of the eternities. Look at verse 11. But behold, I will show unto you a God of miracles, even the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and it is the same God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are, which ties in back to what he said in verse 9. For do we not read that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing? Here he's introducing this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the creation of the heavens and earth, and he says God doesn't change, and yet in the church we've seen lots of things change. We've seen even some teachings and a lot of practices and, and procedures change and policies and handbooks, they change but it's those things that are changing, not God. God isn't up in heaven saying, hmm, we learned from that. That was a mistake. We're not going to repeat that again. Okay, new policy in heaven. We're going to change the handbook here in heaven. We're going to handle these kinds of situations differently. Moroni is saying, no, you can't have faith in a God who does that. Our God doesn't change. The world changes. Our situations change. Our culture, our society changes and God gives different laws at different times for different reasons to different people, but he's not changing. He's not learning new things that now would make him scratch his head and say, man, I wish we would have handled things differently back in the Old Testament times. He's not changing. He, he's perfect. He knows what's best, and what he's doing at each segment of the earth's uh, history is he's doing whatever is in the best interest of the most people to give them the most freedom to be able to exercise that agency to find the greatest happiness and peace and joy in life, which then brings us to verse 12. And by the way, you could mark verse 12. Uh, it's got all three pillars of eternity in a little uh, short verse. Behold, he created Adam, and by Adam came the fall of man, and because of the fall of man came Jesus Christ, even the Father and the Son, and because of Jesus Christ came the redemption of man. Creation, fall, and atonement. Those are the three pillars upon which the whole plan of our Heavenly Father is, is resting. Those three things have to be in place, called the three pillars of eternity by some of our prophets and apostles from the past. Because of the redemption of man which came by Jesus Christ, they are brought back into the presence of the Lord. Notice who's brought back into the presence of the Lord? Everyone is. Everyone's brought out of the grave, brought back into the presence of the Lord, yea, this is wherein all men are redeemed. Circle all. That's a hundred percent. Everyone gets redeemed into the presence of the Lord and into a resurrected body but you may not get to dwell in the presence of God, like we talked about in, in Mormon chapter 7. But we're all redeemed, universal redemption, not universal salvation. That's a, a slightly different uh, uh, set of requirements to meet here. Because the death of Christ bringeth to pass the resurrection, which bringeth to pass a redemption from an endless sleep, from which sleep all – there's that word again – Men shall be awakened by the power of God when the trump shall, sh shall sound, and they shall come forth both small and great, and all shall stand before his bar, being redeemed and loosed from this eternal band of death, which death is a temporal death. 
So you've heard this doctrine from Amulek, you've heard it from Alma, you've heard it from Samuel the Lamanite, you've heard it from Mormon, now you're hearing it from Moroni. It's triangulated. Everyone's going to come out of the grave resurrecting. Everyone's going to get brought into the presence of God. Everyone's going to be redeemed, but not everyone will stay in the presence of God. Only those who have met the conditions of repentance, who have, have uh, accepted those covenantal agreements that Christ has made with us and that, that God has made with us through Christ. Look now, verse 16, behold, are not the things that God hath wrought marvelous in our eyes? Yea, and who can comprehend the marvelous works of God? Brothers and sisters, as you, as you finish the book called Mormon here and, and listen to Moroni's last words, contemplate what God has done, not just in the big cosmic ways, not just with the Book of Mormon, not just with his prophets, not just with Joseph Smith, not just with the church, but contemplate what God has done with you. Contemplate your creation. Contemplate your personal fall, your personal falling short. Contemplate the third pillar of eternity, the infinite atonement, the plan of redemption in your own life as you analyze these principles from a mirror perspective. It's glorious because that's where the work of God takes place uh, in, in powerful ways is at that one-on-one, one-by-one -on -one, one level, not just at the big cosmic house of Israel, uh, whole world kind of level. Uh, jump now down to verse 21. Behold, I say unto you that whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing, whatsoever he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted unto him and this promise is unto all. There's that word again, all. That's a hundred percent, even unto the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to just take our word for it. That's not the point. It's not to tune your, your ears to us. It's our purpose, our intent is to try to turn your eyes heavenward and to tune your ears upward, to seek those, those inspirations and those answers and those, those directions that can come only from God. He says, if you'll doubt nothing, believing in Christ, whatever you ask in the name of the Father shall be granted you. Now, he doesn't promise you the timing. He doesn't say instantaneously, and he doesn't say it's going to come while you're praying, but he does promise that these things will be granted. So, if we spend less time fighting with each other about what is right and what is wrong and spend more time turning to God saying, teach me truth and teach me what you want me to do with my life, with my struggles, with my gifts, my talents, with my sins. Teach me how to, how to move forward in spite of my imperfections and my faults. Then he will answer those, those uh, prayers and give us direction. I love Moroni's insistent focus on God as a God of miracles. If you look at this chapter, Mormon 9, the word miracle shows up in several locations. And I want to tie it into this beautiful covenantal phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? The God who will perform miracles. 
You might remember Isaac, the son of Abraham, was the miracle child. He was a miracle to old Abraham and old Sarah, evidence that God will do miracles to fulfill his covenants. Now, the word Isaac in Hebrew means laughter, or by extension, to smile, because Isaac brought laughter and smiles to his parents. They laughed in a bit of disbelief that they could ever have a child, but they also smiled when they had him. The word miracle, interestingly enough, actually comes from the same word. The word miracle, in its original sense, means to smile. God wants us to smile, and his miracles will cause us to laugh in, like, wonderment and to smile at the work of God. And so as we look at what Moroni is sharing with us, that God is a God of miracles, you can ask yourself, when has God caused me to smile or to laugh? When has he caused wonder in my life? Now as we, we wind up this chapter, which for him, for Moroni, was in his mind, it seems, this is, this is it. Uh, I'm, I'm ending, ending the book. I've run out of plates. Uh, notice, starting in verse 27 through 29, notice his his writing style. He shifts into this almost like a parent who's sending a child away who's, who's going to be going on a perilous journey. What's the thing the parent wants to do? Give him all of the things that you need to remember. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. The imperatives. That's what you get, this long list of things that we should do or don't or not do in 27 through 29. And then he finishes with, uh, look at verse 30, Behold, I speak unto you as though I spake from the dead, for I know that ye shall have my words. <laughs> He's saying, I've seen you reading my words. I know you've got them. It's kind of this interesting circular situation that he has going on writing here, but seeing what he's writing here in our day, he knows we've got him. Now look at verse 31. Condemn me not because of mine imperfection. There it is again. Neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. What a great way to describe that experience in the mirror once again. Don't condemn yourself. Don't condemn these, these prophets. Don't condemn the church. Don't condemn Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon because of imperfections. But be thankful that you recognize some things so that we can learn to be more wise. Well, that conversation in the mirror, don't condemn yourself when you've struggled. Simply recognize when you've struggled, repent, learn from it, and move on, move forward, enlightened. Now, behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us the reformed Egyptian, being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech. Back in 1st Nephi, Nephi tells you he's writing uh, the language of the Egyptians. Here at the end of the book, Moroni tells you that they're writing in reformed Egyptian. It's almost as if to say that over these thousand years, they, they've even reformed what Nephi had originally started writing. We don't know for sure if he's referring to Nephi writing in reformed Egyptian or if they've slowly reformed it. Either way, 
it's complex, and it's going to be a very difficult language, and nobody knows it, and so for it to come forth, it can't be by the wisdom of mankind. It has to be by the wisdom of God. The gift and power of God is going to bring this book forth. And then he tells you, look, if we'd had big enough plates, we would have written in Hebrew, because then we wouldn't have had an error in, in our writing. But we've also altered our spoken Hebrew, he tells us. Uh, nonetheless, he, he finishes on verse 34, but the Lord knoweth the things which we have written, and also that none other people knoweth our language, and because that none other people knoweth our language, therefore he hath prepared means for the interpretation thereof. These, these uh, Nephite interpreters that are going to be handed down with the record in order to bring these things to light. Now, we come to his last verse. Of all the things Moroni could talk about, what does he focus us on? The Lord Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, and covenants. There is, a, there is a thread of covenant that, whether you like it or not, it just keeps coming up over and over and over again in this book. The very last verse written by Mormon connected us with covenant. Look at verse 37, may the Lord Jesus Christ grant that their prayers may be answered according to their faith, and may God the Father remember the covenant which he hath made with the house of Israel, and may he bless them forever through faith on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen." And brothers and sisters, that verse means a little bit more knowing that it comes from the pen or the stylus of a guy who's wandering all alone, who feels completely cut off, who, who has no safe place to turn on this earth, but he's reminding us in the latter days that we're not cut off, that we do have a place of safety in the house of Israel, in the covenantal uh, protection that's offered to us by God and by his Son, Jesus Christ. So to finish today, just know that there is a God in heaven. He doesn't change. He's not He's not figuring things out as he goes along. He knows what he's doing, and he sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to save us, and he's offering to us this covenantal uh, connection with him. The God of the universe who holds worlds without number in his hand is saying to us, give me everything that you have and everything that you are, and in return. I'll give you everything that I have and everything that I am. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once said, what an exchange rate. Know that he lives. Know that he loves you. And we leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>